1: Um, However, tonight we're joined with John Rainer, um, and uh, we're delighted to be joined by him. Um, John is the author of the debut memoir, The Man Who Couldn't Eat. The book is based on a story of the same title he wrote for Esquire, which won the 2010 James Beard Foundation Award for magazine feature writing. He was nominated, it was nominated for a National Magazine Award and subsequently has been translated into multiple languages for international publication. This extraordinary book is about an unforgettable story of one man grappling John, Grappling with Insatiable Hunger. It has been described by the Wall Street Journal as wholly enthralling, a book that will make you appreciate every breath you take and every bite you eat. John currently lives in New York City and we're very happy to have him here with us today. And on that note, I'm happy to turn the microphone over to tonight's author.
0: Thank you, thank you. Hello, fans. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I just want to start by saying this is... I've been doing a book tour for about a month. Uh, This is the 11th bookstore I've been in. Of the 11, uh, nine are independent stores like Skylight. 2 I did two Barnes & Nobles. And the difference between the remaining chain and the independent stores, is so pronounced, not only for customers, but also for writers. And I, I think I can truly say that if stores like Skylight didn't exist, writers like me would have nowhere to go and read. We all know, that the chal- we all know about the challenges that the publishing industry is facing and that the book selling industry is facing, and they are real and they are significant. But as long as there are people around who read and can support independent bookstores, it's essential because uh, it connects readers to books, it connects readers to authors, and it connects uh, authors to readers and to booksellers in a way that the one remaining chain just can't do. So thanks very much to Skylight for having me. I, I discovered Skylight a couple of years ago on a trip to LA and loved it. Hi, come on in, and thought, when I was looking for an LA store, this would be a great place to be. And when they said yes, I thought, I'll look no further. This is wonderful. So um, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to read two passages from The Man Who Couldn't Eat, and then we'll have the opportunity to talk and have questions and sign books. I know that the subject matter of the book, for those of you, who haven't, you know, who've read it, you know it's, it's obviously a serious subject, but there's, uh, there are other dimensions to this story, a lot of other emotions. So, when I'm reading and, and the passages that I've read, I think, lend themselves to humor. I do not want you to be afraid to laugh <laughs> or to howl or to hoot or to groan. Um, in the words of Tom Stoppard, the sound of laughter is the sound of comprehension and I am a firm believer and practitioner of that. So, uh, please be yourselves, don't be polite. Uh, you're all old friends <laughs> and, um, and I want you to have a good time. I do want to uh, just introduce a, a few people before we get started. Um, two in particular, I have a lot of old friends here and I won't introduce everyone. But there, there are two that I do want to introduce. One is there's someone who, among all the readings I've done, this person gets the award for having known me the longest. Um, my friend, Steve Goffman, who's here, Steve and I have known each other since we were two years old. <laughs> so um, uh, we were na- next door neighbors and have remained friends all these years. and. Um, Steve was the more successful of the two. He is, uh, he's, in a, he, he's a lawyer for Sony Pictures. <laughs> but we're still friends, which is wonderful. And, um, and then I have uh, many old New York friends who are here. But uh, among the New York friends I have who are here, uh, Carol Chenoweth, who's here, and Carol's husband, Milo Reese, who's next to her. Milo has uh, two reasons for being introduced. Uh, first and foremost, Milo is a painter and a, and a painter of some renown and a very talented artist. Uh, Milo is also in the book. Milo is mentioned on page 151. <laughs> so when you get to page 151 and you see Milo's name, you'll be able to put the name with a face. <laughs> Remember him. And the other reasons that I introduced them is that Carol and Milo are the last living Bohemians in the United States. (laughs) So I'm especially proud to have them here. So the first section of the book is towards the beginning of the story. Uh, Essentially this book is an opportunity to use food to talk about a life's experience. So food is the literary device, the creative device that enables me to talk about psychology and identity and culture and emotions and relationships and economy and everything. Food is a remarkably rich subject and I didn't really have an appreciation for that until I was into the writing of the story. At the beginning of the story, I'm, at this point, I'm sick, I'm in the hospital and I'm in bad shape. And I'm trying to figure out what caused this, because I was in an emergency situation. The minute before I got sick, I felt terrific. Had no sense of this foreboding going on inside of me. So as I'm in a hospital bed, replaying the events, trying to get some sense to what happened, I keep coming back to food. I keep coming back to food memories and wondering if any of the food I had may have caused the illness. And when you're in that kind of a situation, you you sort of think a lot about your life. And I started to think about food in a way that I hadn't before. Partly because I was trying to figure out what was going on. Partly because I was in the hospital and I couldn't eat or drink anything. And I was thinking very much about what I couldn't have. So since there's so many New Yorkers in the crowd, I've I've selected this passage. Uh, This is a flashback passage. It takes place in 1968 Uh, on the Lower East Side of New York at a place called Katz's Deli, which for all the old New Yorkers in the crowd, uh, maybe have some sentimental value. And it's a flashback episode for me, and I'm thinking about this first trip there. And ultimately, I come to this realization of what it meant to my family's history and what it meant culturally and some other things. So here we go. My parents took my sister Lisa and me for lunch to a place called Katz's, an old deli that is noisier than my school cafeteria and smells like the garlic to salami chandeliers hanging from its crummy ceiling. We traveled to the city from New Jersey in the red VW Bug my dad drives and he palms the knobby stick shift back and forth 20 times to squeeze into a parking space near Katz's. He's talked about this place a lot. In the throaty voice he uses to exaggerate and get me interested in something and I'm excited. I smell it first. Leaning hard to unseal the deli's front door from its airlock, I'm knocked back into the glass as an explosion of aroma bursts over me. It overpowers my nostrils. It's like nothing I've ever smelled before. Then sounds blast. Dishes, silverware, glasses yammering on tabletops, oven doors hinging open and shut, the metal tumblers of the front cash register, and shouting, people shouting to be heard over the tableware symphony. Pastrami, lean on club, two corned beef with mustard on rye, four Dr. Browns, three cream, one celery. Where's my French? I push through a turnstile like at Yankee Stadium and an unshaven guy curved on a stool presses a carnival ticket stub in my hand. He's a scary looking sentry. My mother takes off with my sister, weaving through the packed dining room's chaos to a table barely bigger than a TB tray where four eaters are just getting up. She hangs her bag over one of the chairs and plants Lisa and her frayed Raggedy Ann in another. The bag draws a laugh from a tubby leaving the table. It's made of white plastic squares we cut from Clorox bottles, hole-punched at the corners, and stitched together with coarse blue yarn. We made it over the summer in Maine when the old swimming area buoys were pulled in and replaced with new bottles. I stand close by my father on one of the pushy lines, fingering out from the counter, that runs the entire long side of the dining hall. Behind us, a couple with wild hair tumbling over their denim collars, dares each other to eat a whole side of Hebrew cow. The buttons pinned to their jacket pockets are the same peace signs I helped stick on the trunk of the Volks, above its slotted exhaust. The hippies have a funny, engaging way. But I'm too shy for eye contact. They catch me staring a little dreamily, in awe of their style, as I am with the college students who come home with my father after class and play Phil Oak's records on my grandparents' hand-me-down Victrola and write papers against the war and trouble my mother for more servings of vegetarian food that she frets over in the casserole dish with the blue flowers stenciled on the sides. What brings you to the People's Temple of Smoked Meats, little man?" The man hippie asks. He sways as if he's listening to music. I want to say something clever, like a red VW with a gray front fender, but I go wobbly in my striped bell-bottoms. I am mute, and the briny aroma of cooked pastrami is beginning to dizzy me. (laughs) My father rescues me and collars me up to the tall counter. He lifts a steaming slice of of just-out-of-the-cooker meat from the small plate the counterman slides to us and feeds it to my dumb, tilted mouth. My first hot pastrami. I have a crooked front tooth from where I smashed into the dashboard in a car accident, and I bite the slice on a slant. The flavor is a revelation. Salty, spicy, tender, hot. Each chew melts on my awakened tongue. Captain Crunch never tasted like this. This must be Jewish communion, I think. The pastrami passes my mouth like something sacred, and I'm converted on the spot into the faith of Jewish soul food. Holy, holy, holy. Yes, Lord, I know the power and the kingdom and the glory. It's right here in Katz's. In rapture with the meat, I shed my shyness and get mouthy about my half of the sandwich. The counterman is stacking like blocks. I want a whole one, I blurt. I don't know what I'm talking about. It just comes out. My father laughs in the yellow deli light. The counterman scoops a bready trench down the middle of the club roll like a dugout canoe and folds the sliced hunks of meat. They're dark and notched at the edges and look like varnished woodcuts. Pastrami fills the whole boat. Dad asks me for the carnival ticket, and the pasty counterman pulls a grease pencil from the pleat in his paper hat. He crosses a black line through the numbered side of the ticket and scrawls another number on the blank backside. Next! We trickle through long lines at other counterstops, loading damp trays with plates of fat french fries, potato caniches, chopped liver mounds, half-sour pickles that glisten bottle green, and cans of Dr. Brown's cream and celery sodas. At the small table, we devour the piles of heart attack on a plate, while my sister busies herself with a bunless, salty frank and trips to the 20-armed, shiny silver fountain to refill our scratched water glasses. Quickly, our paper napkins are blotted with grease and Katz's own brown-flecked mustard, which they spoon into used yogurt containers. My problem pickiness is back in New Jersey, and I polish off my share of the pastrami on club in rapid bites. Evidently, despite my featherweight frame, I've inherited the gluttony gene of my bloviating ancestors, the ones who measure their vacations by the inches padded on their waistlines. What a time I had! I gained 12 pounds in two weeks! (laughs) My relatives crow about food in weird ways, like when my Uncle Richard lies on Grandma Molly's scratchy living room carpet after Thanksgiving dinner, unbuckles his belt, opens his trousers, and moans like a cow. (laughs) It looks funny. But here, under the gastronomic spell of chopped liver, I'm beginning to see the light. I see the people jamming cats' tables and counter lines, digging into the food like pirates into treasure, the families with teenagers and strollers clogging the aisles, the old-timers sitting against the wall beside pictures of grinning big shots, the swaying hippies, us. For the first time, food makes sense. Food is fun. Food is a party. I'm part of it. It's our cultural identity. It's our bond." That's the end of the first section. So, if that doesn't make you want to eat hot pastrami on Club, I don't know what possibly could. It's funny, it's funny. I, um, I wrote that scene, and, you know, it was very natural for me to write it. And I don't know how many, but a lot of the book reviewers have picked up on that, on Katz's pastrami. So I mean, obviously Katz is, is iconic and people know it, but um, I guess, you know, it resonated with people. So I, I thought that'd be a good one read for all the New Yorkers here too. So I'm gonna read another section towards the end of the book. And at this point, the, the story is coming almost full circle. I've gone through the long episode of not eating and that's, you know, obviously central to the story. And I've come back to eating, but um, it's been unusual and not what I expected. Uh, What I hadn't realized is that um, I may have been static, but the world was in motion. Uh, Like everything else you don't have, uh, you idealize it. And I, I idealized food, I romanticized it. I'm, you know, lying in a hospital bed thinking about a pastrami sandwich I ate in 1968. <laughs> so how much more romantic can you get about food than that? And I found when I came back to it that everything had changed. I thought I was going to come back to eating everything I was missing. Pastrami sandwiches, Entenmann's chocolate donuts, um, Titano's pizza, and all the vivid things that you know I get great pleasure from. But I was off food for three months. And then when I came back to food, um, I had a very strange experience. First of all, I couldn't taste anything. My taste buds had atrophied while I'd gone without food. And the food that I was eating wasn't agreeing with me. I had some medical issues. So food, which I had looked forward to so much, was an empty experience. I mean, I was this empty vessel putting in something which had you know, no pleasure whatsoever. And then I went through that for several months. And that really shook me and worried me. Then eventually, I healed. My taste buds came back, and I was able to eat. And I did go back to eating hot pastrami and everything. But I was persuaded by a friend who is a nutritional counselor and a practicing macrobioticist that if I wanted to live, I couldn't just go back to the diet I'd had and that I should really try a macrobiotic diet. And I did, with her help. Uh, I I started off for several months uh, hardcore, really trying to do it. And I don't know how many of you have tried that or any other diet that's, you know, has a similar kind of evangelical quality to it. They're hard to do. They require a lot of sacrifice and a lot of discipline. And I'm an undisciplined person, unwilling to make sacrifices. (laughs) Um, I'm a pleasure seeker. (laughs) And diets like this are made for people of sterner stuff than me. But I did have this sort of underlying threat imposed, which is if you, try this, if you do this diet, your health will improve. And what goes unsaid is if you don't do this diet, you may be placing yourself at risk. So I had some motivation to do it. But at this point in the story, I'm several months into that. And I have removed myself, not only from the food I love, but all the other things that come with it, the social aspects of it, um, and the cultural aspects of it, and the interpersonal aspects of sharing meals, things. And it's starting to feel, not normal. And one of the things uh, that for me, I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I do all the grocery shopping for the family, and I had been avoiding my supermarket because that was a dangerous place for me to be. But my supermarket is also a place where I've been a regular for a long time, and I know the people there, and it's a big part of my twice-a-week routine. So I'm going to read a couple of pages which come at the moment where I'm really at a sort of a crisis point with how much further I can go on with this macrobiotic diet. <clears throat> the macrobiotic binder I have says otherwise, but I feel as though my balance is off. All of this refusing and shutting down and contracting leads to, leans too heavily yang to be correct. Macrobiotic is yin and yang. How can I go to a party and not eat the cake? How can I walk in the city, shunning the restaurants, and think I'm maintaining a balanced self and harmony with my surroundings, in harmony with what? Isolation? I'm a dieter. This must be how my mother feels. (laughs) How can I survive my supermarket? Supermarkets have no equal when it comes to harvesting the abundance, the thrill, the pleasure of food, and the volume of living to eat. Not all supermarkets, of course. Not the lousy one where my mother shopped when I was a kid and the meat sloshed in the package. Not my Uncle Nat's little sidewalk market in Coney Island. My neighborhood supermarket, Fairway, however, reigns a delirium of food in its cramped aisles. It's a sight I craved in my hospital bed. A week after running from Max's spaghetti bowl, I'm fulfilling my family's shopping lists and ignoring entire shelves of old friends. Yuri, the Russian writer who cried when I showed him the cereal display in an American supermarket years ago, who knew starvation, would send me to the Gulag for blinding myself to the bounty in this store. Tell me what you crave, and I will tell you what you are. I see Eduardo, the cheesemonger, from the shoulders up, standing behind the open counter display, and I roll in my cart, wedging it between walls of rounds and slabs and cubes. For months, I've been ashamed to confess to him that I'm off the stuff. I've either gassed some lie, saying I bought cheese on his break, or swallowed a few inane words about the weather or the pathetic nicks, or skipped the cheese department entirely and flapped a lame wave in passing on my way to the tofu. The diet has choked the social act of shopping. The market's selection of cheese is mind-boggling. There are varieties from every conceivable farm and cellar. Even in my cheesy years, when I gorged on three servings a day, I barely made a bite in the hundreds of kinds that plug the alcove space in yellow, white, orange, brown, and blue. I don't care what they say, I won't live in a world without cheese. I sing to Eduardo, bearing my soul in song. Hello, my friend. I no see you in long time. You feeling better? Eduardo is a little coy at seeing me. I've broken a trust. The white smock puffs over his stocky body like a cloud. He's wearing a store cap with a straight brim that chops his forehead and flattens his round face. My favorite poster hangs on the tile wall beside him, above a goat cheese pyramid. It's a large picture of a cow standing sturdily in a Vermont field. Some joker took a snapshot of Eduardo's grinning mug and pasted it over the cow's head. (laughs) I'm good, I say. I see you're smiling on the posters, so the world as we know it still exists. I have news for you. Pitchers and catchers report to spring training Monday. You ready? I'm standing at the rear of the cart, gripping the handle, a few feet off the counter. That I know, yes. Yankee staff, deep, and Posada, he's still strong. If the middle relief holds up, I see another series, I say. That'd be so nice. Another monger, half Eduardo's width and a droopy smock, checks in and motions to the congested shelf between cheese and coffee. It's set-up time at this hour in the store. So tell me, how come I no see you? Eduardo asks me. Enough lies, I decide. I've been on a diet, a macrobiotic diet, and there's no cheese allowed. No dairy, no meat, no bread haven't eaten cheese since before Christmas. Telling my cheesemonger that cheese is bad for me, the ultimate betrayal. I resettle the heavy sauerkraut bottle in the front of the cart. Eduardo smiles, and a knowing spread splits his face, showing a brown front tooth in a line of yellow. This crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged, I say, and laugh. Last time I see you, you tense. To illustrate the point, Eduardo sets down the black-handled knife on the counterboard, pushing into his belly, and raises both shoulders to his ears. He's succinct. Now you look more calm, he concludes, relaxing his shoulders. You were sick. How are you feeling? I'm calm because I've finally decided to buy cheese. I'm not cutting myself off today. (laughs) Eduardo wipes the sharp knife on a dish towel, then paper wraps a triangle of Irish cashel blue, and places it on the countertop near me. I can smell it, very sharp. My mother likes the cheese, and I bring hunks of it to Maine. You got to know yourself, Eduardo says. The doctor, he say he know it best, but it's just his advice, you know. Your wife, she could give you all the medicine and the best food, but you got to do what right for you. How do you know what that is, I ask him. I step around the cart and stand close by the cheese at the counter's edge by the hand-lettered Don't Touch sign. A loud squeal revs from the neighboring coughing grinder, and the other monger leaves. I can talk to Eduardo directly. I thought I was doing that, but it didn't work. I don't sound like I'm here to talk basketball. I'm a diabetic, Eduardo says. The doctor tell me what he want me to do. Cut out, cut out, cut out. But I say, moderation. those chunky eyeglasses are reflecting images of the cube cheddar displays in their lenses. A cheese vision. <laughs> Instead of four pieces of bread, I eat two. Instead of half a pound of meat, I take half that. You got to live. That's what I'm trying to figure out, I say, nodding. Eduardo's counsel makes enormous sense. The guy's world is cheese, I think, and this corner of the store smells sharp and alive. It's like the apricots in the paper bag. How can something so good be bad for you? Macrobiotics has me living in a schoolmarm state. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Like repression is the key to good health. The essence of craving is first dismissed and then missed. Nonsense. My food self has been buried under Eduardo's counter, and before that, in the guts of a mechanical pump. I've been on the dark side of the road. I know we eliminate cravings at our peril. Let me have that Irish blue you cut, I say. I cab the groceries home, and the driver helps me unload the trunk, carrying bags to my building's front steps. Most drivers don't bother getting out of the seat, but he's been a pleasantly engaging guy on the short ride from the supermarket. He's West African and opinionated, and we agree entirely on the news radio story about Wall Street thieves. When he stands and grabs half the eight bags, I see that he's taller and fitter than I guessed from the gray head on the driver's headrest. The river wind blows the shopping bags when we set them on the steps. My fingers are freezing. You eat watermelon? The driver points to a container of chopped watermelon pieces sitting at the top of a bag he carried in. My kids love it. And I thought I'd surprise them with a treat in the middle of winter, I say. They'll go through it by breakfast. If you have cancer, if you have something else, you drink watermelon and papaya juice three times a day. He speaks in a strong voice that's undaunted on the blustery corner. What happens? You cut a piece of watermelon, you put it in the juicer. Skin, seeds, everything. You do the same thing with the papaya. Skin, seeds, you put it all in and blend it to juice. Three times a day, it heal you. The driver prescribes his remedy with a friendly urgency. His large hands are strong. His skin is unlined. He could be anywhere from 30 to 70 years old. Do you drink the watermelon papaya? I ask, firming my leg against a rattling shopping bag. Of course I do, he answers brightly. I'm a homeopath. Lugging the groceries into the lobby elevator, I wonder what it was that got the driver on my case. He saw the watermelon in the bag, sure, but why would he jump to talk about disease? Is there something he saw in me that registered as sick? The community food bank is following me offline. Everybody's got a cure. The question is, which one? Papaya isn't on my diet. So. so, there we have it. Um, I would be happy to talk about the book, and if, if, if you're interested, or I'll offer one more, you can take a vote on this, <laughs> um, which is, uh, one of the questions that always comes up is what are you writing next? And I actually am writing a book that I started writing years before I wrote this. Uh, called Shoots and Ladders. And it's about something else I've lived through, which is long-term unemployment. And I had been writing, as I say, for a long time, and then this book happened, and I wrote this. But um, I've, I've been, I've gone back to writing this book. And in the past couple of weeks, something called Occupy Wall Street has happened, which has put this subject matter in the news. And it's actually put me in the news because I've been to Occupy Wall Street a number of times. And because I don't look like the other protesters and I have a different story to tell, um, I've been on MSNBC, USA Today, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. I'm going to be on co- uh, Korean television on Friday when I go back. Um, I've been interviewed by the Times, etc. But I've been on the West Coast, so I've gone to Occupy Seattle, Portland, Eugene, Ashland, San Francisco, and today I went to Occupy LA. So um, I have what may be the opening of the story here. It's just two short pages, which I'd be happy to read, or if you had enough of my voice and would like to hear your voice, I'd be happy not to read it. Okay. This actually, um, I did put this on my blog on my website, so um, I know at least one person here has seen it, so forgive me. But, so it starts with a quote, Uh, somebody's speaking, so the quote is, you don't look like a protester. I've heard that a lot in Liberty Park where I've joined the Occupy Wall Street movement and in the marches to Foley Square, Washington Square Park, and elsewhere. Calling this particular plaza a park is a stretch. It's a cramped slab of marble patio and benches shaded by an occasional tree, but the harsh geometry is animated by the residents who've moved in. Sleeping bags, hand-lettered signs, guitars and drums, cafeteria tables, lots of hot food, and a network of laptops pulsing at the center have grown grassroots vitality on this barren afterthought in the well of skyscrapers. I used to eat lunch here, on the punishing benches, when I worked my first corporate job just out of school. Standing at the Occupy Wall Street information area, I can see my old office building, a lavish pagoda high in the western sky. I bought my first hand-tailored suit in the Brooks Brothers across the street, where a dozen police are now talking by the display windows. Pinstriped with real buttonholes. The suit was a youthful extravagance, especially silly of me to dress like a banker, since I wasn't one and didn't work for a bank. The you don't look like a protest or disbelief comes from a reporter who's sizing me up for a story, curious about why I'm hanging around with college kids who are less than half my age. I look like the 26 million Americans who are out of work, I say. I've gone through three corporate layoffs since 2001, and I've been unemployed since the last one, five years ago. My wife, two kids, and I, we've all been living with it. Uh Oh? The story surprises the reporter as much as my appearance. She's barely older than the guy I just spoke to, a college senior from Vermont named Dan, wearing a construction worker's coat and a budding political scientist's beard. His dad's a mechanic who's been laid off twice and they're both in shaky situations. My story's familiar to Dan. The issues that brought Dan and me to occupy Wall Street are cross-generational. The only difference in our outlook is that he's worried about his future while I'm worried about my present. The reporter opens her spiral pad and writes fast as I go through the shorthand of my decimated career. I worked in marketing and made enough money for a modest middle-class life. My layoffs were decided by corporate directors responding to the charge of undervalued stock, leveled by Wall Street analysts, who also set absurd 20% annual growth targets. My wife's job pays about half our monthly bills, and we've been stretching dollars and drawing down the blood bank of our savings for the past five years. That bank is now dry. I've sent 2,000 resumes and not received an offer. There's a stigma to being unemployed, but because of the length of my unemployment, the government no longer counts me in the statistics. They group me and 12 million others as having given up. We haven't given up. We can't afford to. It's the employers who've given up on us. The reporter nods demonstratively through my history. I'm a perfect storm of a story for her, a man in a family crisis connected to a country full of them. She looks up and asks, why are you here? I thought my saga made that self-evident, but it will take more time to make the point. I've been living this for a decade and no one was interested. Not the media, of course not corporations, and certainly not the government. According to all of them, the recession ended years ago. I've been shouting into the wind. Finally, in this park, there are people who recognize what's been happening for so long and want to change the situation. The least I could do is show up. An organizational meeting is starting near us. About 40 people sit cross-legged in the crevice between the computers and the plaza's perimeter wall. They're discussing the essentials of survival. Food donations coming in from around the country. Sanitation. Shelter from the elements. The kinds of things that all of us whose lives have been reduced to day-to-day think about. I've got expertise and could add something of value to the conversation. I should get to the meeting. A half-smile splits the reporter's smooth face, and she pulls another notebook from her messenger bag. She flips to the first blank page. Okay, I see the people, she says. But what is this all about? She's answered her own question. I wonder when she'll know it. So that's the start. (laughs) So, you have been very patient. And if you've got anything you want to talk about, I would be happy to hear it. Any questions, anybody? How are you feeling? How am I feeling? Um, I'm feeling great. I mean, you know, I flew cross country, I did a book tour, uh, I've been going out to eat with friends, and I'm good. Um, In the case of my particular illness, which is called Crohn's disease, like every illness, you know, there's a scale. And uh, Excuse me. I'm somewhere in the middle of the scale. The episode that happens in this book was at the top of the scale. That was really bad, but I've lived with it all my life, somewhere around the middle, and you know that's how I feel. I'm back to now. The thing that living with illness requires of you is to accept that you live with uncertainty. Um, but I don't always do a very good job of accepting that. And. You know, that, that's one of the issues that I explore in conversations with a couple of doctors in the book. And everybody has to treat, you know, sort of their their situation differently. And um, I don't know, for a long time I had a real, not unhealthy, functional denial about my health. Which was, you know, there are a lot of things I want to do and I don't want to think that my health is going to prevent me from doing them. And that's not really a bad thing to do. but or a bad way to think, but then you get a surprise, you get an emergency, and it shakes everything that you know that you've come to believe or, or choose to want to believe. Yeah, yeah. But I'm um, good. Yeah. So how long? Um, when were first? When was the first episode? Or did you like how? How long does the story? Take? Sure. Um, the story covers exactly one year, and that's cute and convenient you know, to write about, but there was actually a funny kind of organic quality that enabled me to write about a year. I got sick, uh, I had, so I had this emergency episode on, and that's where the book starts, on a Friday the 13th. (laughs) If you're a and there's some validity to it. So on February, Friday the 13th, 2009, I wind up on the floor sick. And then on February 13th, 2010, I was at, uh, we were at friends' house a uh, friend's house in the country, and they were the f- same friends we were supposed to see when I first got sick and couldn't see. And a year later, our kids go to school together, so we were on the same school break together. And we were at their house, and we were making a macrobiotic meal together. But with, again, some conflict about what everybody really wanted to eat. And I thought that that made for a nice end point for the story. There's resolution. Um, you get to see sort of how we all came through it, but I don't think it's a phony resolution. And I think, I, I tried at least to leave it with enough sense of reasonable ambiguity that you get the sense that, okay, this year has ended, this chapter has ended, but all the people in this book will still go on when the, when the story's over, so. That was the thought behind structuring it around a year. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Has anybody uh, reviewed the book poorly? Um, are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> if it's no, it's no. Well, none of the professional reviewers have reviewed it poorly. But, and th- So this is my f- first book, after many years of trying and uh, so my first experience with reviewers. So, of course, I was very nervous about it. And the professional reviews that I've gotten have all been very positive, actually, and in fact, have surprised me. Um, I know this sounds arrogant, but I prefer honest arrogance to false modesty, so. (laughs) Um, uh, I've actually been surprised that a first time writer like me would get a couple of reviews that clearly were very well read and were very thoughtful and were really extensive so that was encouraging so none of them have been negative there 's something else though now which is that everyone who operates a blog reviews a book, and there are thousands of them and then a lot of people who just buy books uh, you know review them at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or at Goodreads or places like that so for the most part, they've also been positive. But I, I, I read Goodreads the other night because uh, I was just catching up because I hadn't looked at it in a couple of weeks, and I found two negative reviews. And um, one of them, you know, you remember all the negative ones, right? You remember those. So one of them wrote that um, it, I was unbearable because I was filled with self-pity, and it made for impossible reading. <laughs> But, but read the whole book anyway. <laughs> um, and then the other wrote that um, it was just uh, oh, what was it? That um, oh, they didn't like my politics. And, and it's funny, I mean, I am by nature a very political person, but I, I, I really I thought went to great lengths to make this an apolitical book. But I do have a few comments in here g- uh, maybe not so general, I thought general um, about the healthcare industry in this country, and I guess that could be interpreted as, it could, you know, it could be interpreted as a political agenda or a political point of view. So that was funny to write about, um, or to read about. And then, um, and then I've had some crackpots write to me. I've had I've had a fair amount of hate mail, which um, I actually find very entertaining. <laughs> in fact, I I enjoy it more than 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 good stuff. I, you know, there are crazy people in this world and you're, it, you're easy to find. And um, if somebody's in a bad mood or <laughs> doesn't like the way you look, you know, then uh, they let you know it. And um, I don't know, it doesn't bother me. Actually, I, I, am, I enjoy it. I, I have some sort of perverse pleasure at it. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but uh, I've been really pleased by the reviews, actually. Yeah. Do so
1: you know how the end, and you just mentioned, you talk about the prompts you know that yeah. people go further? into that and maybe the food industry or the whole that
0: food industry? Well, that's a good question. It's been covered by people a lot more knowledgeable than me. I mean, Michael Pollan has made, you know, a cottage industry out of it. Um, I, I, I am continuing to write about food because I'm having requests from magazines and online sites and things like that. So I've continued to write food essays and I have, in the process, I, I think, figured out what my place is in, in writing about food, if that's what I'm going to do. Because I came to this subject entirely accidentally. I mean, I was a guy who had never written about food, and I'm a, you know, a really rotten cook. Um, but I'm a really a passionate eater. And I had this, you know, this story happened to me, so it was the opportunity to write about food I never had. And what I keep coming back to is I am writing about it from, you know, my perspective, unschooled, untrained, um, but passionate about it, so I think of myself as an everyman gourmand. <laughs> you know, I'm the person who's writing about sort of real food. First of all, I can't afford fancy food. I can't afford to eat in fancy restaurants, and I don't have the skill or the inclination to shop and cook that way. So I'm writing about food from, uh, I think, you know, a more common and uh, familiar and essential point of view, but using it, and because I'm not a food writer, even though I won the 2010 James Beard Award, (laughs) which is the ultimate irony. I'm the anti-food food food writer. I'm the only one. Um, I'm writing about food and its connotations for, again, all these other qualities psychology and history and cultural and personal you know, relationships and things like that. So I think that's if I cont- where I will continue to write about food. I think it will be there um, because I realize how much I think about it and how much I process things. Like I, this tour, I'd never been in the Northwest before and I was in Portland just for a day and Portland has this reputation as being a foodie city and there were all these restaurant recommendations. And I'm sure they're all great and, you know, it's a food culture now. But um, I was working in the library and I walked out of the library for lunch, wondering where I was gonna eat. And there's a square in Portland where I was. And um, this square was, the entire perimeter was surrounded by food carts. But really interesting looking food carts. Every ethnic food, you know, you can think of. So I, I ate, you know, this fabulous, Baguette and ham and brie sandwich and cucumbers and this fantastic, uh, you know, uh, summer squash soup and this Chinese tea, and I went around to about half a dozen of these food carts, sampling the different food. And what it was for me was um, it was a great lunch. First of all, it was a great meal, and it was cheap, which is important to me. But um, it was for me, it was a way to discover Portland you know it was the street food and i met some people when i was doing this and had some conversations so again it was you know food had another dimension besides the fact that it was available and tasted really good it it, it introduced me to a place i'd never been to before so that's really at the, at the moment anyway you know my point of view on the subject the pharmaceutical stuff i probably won't write about only because i'm i've got too much anger <laughs> So, people probably get pretty tired of reading that. <laughs> yes, anyone? The Crohn's Society wanted to make you a poster child for them? Um, no, goddamn damn them. Um, <laughs> yes and no. Um, they have reviewed... Uh, so, there's an organization called the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, which is what, you know, sounds like what it is. And um, they have reviewed the book, and they like the book, Even though there are some issues in here which are troubling because, uh, as Tina alluded to, I have some conflicts with my Western doctors and I go off my medication and, you know, these are not things that an organization like that necessarily advocates. But despite that, they've actually endorsed the book. But um, they've yet to put it on their website, so I'm (laughs) waiting for them to do that. And they were, you know, they've become an official marketing partner for me but they haven't done anything, so um, I don't know how far it's going, but, uh, you know, so I have somewhat of an endorsement for it. They think it's okay.
1: And thank you. Guys. Right, thank thank you, very you. Much. you have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.